Adolescent drug use is generally becoming less common, but overdose deaths in this age group have increased substantially in the past several years. Clinicians, policymakers, and others could work to stem this tide by promoting access to mental health and addiction services and taking steps to help adolescents keep themselves safe. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Joseph Friedman, a medical student at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, who has a PhD in social medicine. Dr. Friedman has co-authored a perspective article about addressing this rising tide of adolescent overdose deaths. Dr. Friedman, what do we know about adolescent substance abuse, and how often are adolescents using illicit drugs? What types of drugs are they using? The good news is that adolescent substance use is, on the whole, actually declining and is currently record low rates. Unfortunately, despite that, it's becoming much more dangerous. So we know that over the past couple decades, 12th graders who are surveyed tell us that they're much less likely to experiment with illicit substances now. Unfortunately, there is a considerable fraction of high schoolers who do continue to experiment with things, especially cannabis, alcohol, and prescription medications. And it's exactly those prescription medications that are becoming so dangerous now in the era of fentanyl and counterfeits, where it's really difficult to know what you actually are consuming in the illicit drug market. So you say in your perspective article that although drug-related mortality among adults has been rising steadily for a number of decades, adolescents have been largely insulated from these increases until recently. So what changed? Is it that fentanyl arrival that's changed things? Yeah, that's exactly right. So look over the past four or five decades or so, and overdose death rates in the U.S. have just climbed steadily, unfortunately, among the general population. But teenagers we're typically insulated from that for most of our country's history. And that's because teenagers were not experimenting with the most dangerous kinds of drugs that were most likely to cause an overdose. So for a time that was heroin, more recently, it's been fentanyl contained in heroin-like products, essentially counterfeit heroin that contains fentanyls. And now we're seeing a rise in counterfeit prescription pills. And so fentanyl actually started to drive up overdose deaths among adults much earlier than it's having that effect for teenagers because adults were using the kind of heroin products that started to be replaced by fentanyl. Teenagers were not using those at such high rates. But just more recently, starting around 2019, we've seen this big rise in counterfeit pills. So this looks like something like oxycodone, or Xanax, or even Adderall, but actually contains illicit fentanyls. And this is what's causing a much more recent and sharp spike in teenage overdose deaths. In your article, you separate adolescents at potential risk for overdose into three distinct groups. So what are those groups and how do their needs vary? The biggest group is teenagers who are simply experimenting with pills or with drugs and really don't have any kind of mental illness or substance use disorder to speak of. And this is a group that really we kind of have to think that any teenager could unfortunately fall into. So we really need to target kind of accurate, harm reduction-oriented drug education towards this group of teenagers, where they need to understand the real risks of what kind of experimenting with illicit drugs these days actually brings along. And this is where we think kind of broadly for every single teenager, pediatricians and parents and educators can step in and help inform teens about the risks and screen teens who may have been exposed to these kinds of products without really knowing it. 
Then we have a group of teens who might be suffering with mental illness, perhaps been exposed to some really traumatic life events, and are seeking out pills as a way to self-medicate their symptoms, right? To kind of help themselves feel better. They're not necessarily teens that have an opioid use disorder, but they are engaging in risky behavior because of a real need for some kind of treatment for the way that they're feeling. And so for these teens, I think it's very important that we identify them quickly and we provide supports to them that can help them feel better in a safe fashion. So not just telling them not to do drugs because it's dangerous, but also giving them the kinds of healthcare and also social supports that they need to really thrive and kind of turn their lives around. And then finally, the group that is at the highest risk of overdose, although probably represents the smallest absolute number of teenagers, is teens that have an opioid use disorder. And there's different estimates of how many teens that represents, but potentially 1% of teens. And for this group, it's really important that we engage with evidence-based practices. So for example, a recent study showed that the vast minority of treatment facilities for adolescents is actually offering buprenorphine, which is a standard of care medication that teens should be receiving when they have an opioid use disorder. And so I think we have to make sure that teens are benefiting from the same advances in addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry that the rest of the population is experiencing in this kind of evolving overdose crisis. So you talked about pediatricians, educators, parents. You've begun to answer this question a bit, but what kinds of tools, services, information can each of those groups provide to these adolescents? I think because the key driver of this risk is illicit fentanyl, and so many teens are exposed to illicit fentanyl unknowingly, the number one thing that we can do is just provide consistent, accurate information from all sides that just educates teens about the risks of fentanyl. Many teenagers still don't know what it is. It's not necessarily an easy thing to just immediately understand why one kind of drug would be so much more dangerous than other kinds of drugs. And so I think the number one thing is just figuring out ways to provide accurate information to teens in a way that they will hear. And so providing that education in schools and doctor's offices from parents on social media, essentially finding the format that will be successful in making teens understand what the risks are, hopefully dissuading them from experimenting with pills. But for the fraction that won't be dissuaded, then educating them about what the risks are and the ways to stay safe are, because we know that there are a number of very good strategies to help people stay safe. I think more broadly, there's also a real lack of rapid, quickly available mental health assistance for teens. Many people struggle finding services that are affordable, that are available without long wait lists. And so I think kind of more structurally, we really do need deep investments in kind of low barrier services for mental illness and especially for substance use disorders for teens. Finally, you say in your article that programs for preventing overdoses should promote adolescent strengths and that adolescents should be recognized and empowered as agents who can drive change in this area, who can help themselves. So what particular challenges and perhaps what untapped potential exist when it comes to working with this population? Well, I think we are engaging with this modern overdose crisis in the context of a long history of 
societal actions and thoughts about drugs, right? I mean, the war on drugs and messaging about drugs has a long history in this country. And I think we have seen that simply telling teenagers not to do drugs does not always work, unfortunately, even though we wish it did. And so a helpful approach is to highlight teenagers' strengths. And so saying, instead of just focusing on the negative aspects of drug use or breaking rules or trying to make teenagers feel scared that if they do this thing, something bad will happen, we can focus on the positive aspects of them wanting to keep themselves and their friends safe, of building community around positive things. And so I think we need to recognize that adolescents are a group, especially high school age adolescents, are a group that can be tricky to reach with traditional sources of media and traditional messaging approaches that might be more effective with adults. So what we would propose is that in many cases, we kind of need to meet adolescents where they are, right? Meet them where they're at and speak in their language and use the platforms that they use and frame things in a way that makes sense to them. So for example, social media really presents a duality of, on the one hand, risk because we know that counterfeit pills are marketed to teenagers on social media. But on the other hand, social media is where a lot of teenagers are learning about drugs and addiction. And there is certainly a lot of really good, accurate information about substances on social media. So the challenge is promoting and highlighting good, accurate sources of information, enlisting teenagers to be the front lines of engaging with the overdose crisis. There's plenty of examples where teenagers have rallied and achieved a number of really great things to try and combat this crisis, often in the wake of tragedy at, for example, their school. So a number of groups of teenagers have been successful in implementing winning the right to be able to carry Narcan at their school in the wake of an overdose and things of that nature. So I think that teenagers, if provided with accurate education about the problems and the risks, can be supported to essentially drive a lot of the change around messaging and risk that we need to achieve. Thank you, Dr. Friedman.